This summer, I learned about a great American philanthropist whom I did not know anything about beforehand. You may not have heard of him either. His name is Julius Rosenwald. And he was born in the early years of the American Civil War in Springfield, Illinois, just blocks from then President Lincoln's home. He was a second generation German Jew who, grew, who was born into a family of merchants and salespeople and did incredibly well at business. During his life, he met some men named Sears and Roebuck, who he went into business with. Eventually, owning the business, or most shares of it, and becoming its CEO and expanding it into the great mail-order retailer it became, particularly in the first half of the 20th century. Julius Rosenwald had a philosophy for how he lived his life in terms of his finances, which was to live off a third of his income, to save a third of his income, and give away the remaining third of his income. He started doing that when he was making as much as $15,000 a year and kept it up his whole life eventually becoming a millionaire, or in today's dollars, a billionaire. He was one of the richest and arguably most powerful people in the United States in the first third of the 20th century. And he had a passion for doing good. He wanted to help others. As he saw his own people persecuted, chased, and killed in pogroms in Europe, he began wondering, what is my role and how is that happening here in the United States? And he became aware of the plight of African American people in the United States during Reconstruction and the early 20th century, and he wanted to do something to help. One of the first things that came to his mind was how African Americans had no place to stay in American cities. Most hotels were shut to them, and so he helped to build YMCAs where people of all races could stay. And his model was again to give a third of the money and ask the community to raise the other two thirds. He's responsible for building some of the great YMCAs all across the country. But he didn't stop there. He became friends with Booker T. Washington, the founder of the Tuskegee Institute in Tennessee. And Booker T. Washington invited him to serve on the board of that wonderful institution. Julius Rosenwald said, I'd be happy to serve, but first I have to come see it. And when he got there, he was amazed at the industry and the talent and the way that students helped build the buildings and work on crafts to make not only their education, but the whole being of the institute possible. And Booker T said to Julius, if you really want to make a difference in the lives of my people, I invite you to build schools for them, small primary schools in local communities. Because at that time, the schools for African-Americans in the Jim Crow South were sub-sub-standard with teachers who barely had enough training to stand before their students. So Julius teamed up with the architect for the Tuskegee Institute, and they began building schools, beautiful buildings with high windows that let in lots of light and room, training for teachers. And again, he gave the same model, I'll give a third and I'll ask the community to raise two-thirds, although this time he specified, I'll ask the black community to raise a third and the white community to raise a third. Most of the third from the white community came from local school boards. But the black community, many of whom had very little money to spend on anything extra, 
raise the funds, and over about two decades, over 5,200 of these Rosenwald schools were built throughout the South. Some of them were burned by, by discriminating and prejudiced people in the communities. They had a policy that they would rebuild the school at least twice. And then after that, they would move it to another location. The alumni from these schools include people like Maya Angelou, Representative John Lewis from Georgia, as well as the ancestors of Oprah Winfrey and Spike Lee, and many other notable people who have helped build our country in cultural and wonderful ways. Rosenwald didn't stop there, however. He went on to establish a fund that helped emerging artists like Marian Anderson and Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes and James Baldwin. He almost single-handedly built the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, rebuilding an old building from the exposition there. And he continued, he built a wonderful uh, housing apartment complex in Chicago that's being renovated to this day, the Michigan Avenue Garden Apartments. He died in 1932, having given away over $70 million, which is over a billion dollars in today's terms. And he wanted his money to not outlast him much further. So 16 years after his death, all the money ran out. <clears throat> As I thought about this story we've heard again this morning from the Gospel of Mark, I wondered, how would Jesus handle Julius Rosenwald? If Julius Rosenwald came before Jesus and said, how, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know if I would agree with Jesus' advice. Because in many ways, Julius Rosenwald, growing up in a capitalist society, using the means of capital to make wealth and to give away tremendous sums of wealth. When you look at the rich young man who came in all earnestness to Jesus, I find myself being sympathetic with him. He seems to have it all, and yet he's searching for something deeper, something more long-lasting, something that will go beyond himself. He's wanting to know what it means to have eternal life and how he can get some. And Jesus is not the most hospitable rabbi when he comes to him. He gives him a sort of rhetorical runaround. He says to him, well, first of all, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. I'm sure that stopped the young man short, just as it would have stopped the hearers at the time short. And then he said, well, are you keeping the commandments already? As he begins to list them, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder. Yes, yes, I've kept them all my life. Well, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and serve the poor. And come and follow me. And when we hear this, I think we begin to wonder, is this what Jesus is really calling me to do? Was Jesus using hyperbole, or was he really being serious? If he was serious, does his instruction only apply to rich young people, or, or only to the very rich? And are those of us who are not that very rich just relax about it? Now, although we have a wide range of incomes at United Parish, I'm quite confident that I'm not preaching to the 1%. And I know that the majority of us are rich by the world's standards, even if we may not feel rich by Brookline or even Boston's standards. But there's a piece in this interaction that I had missed up until this reading this week, is that when Jesus answered him, he looked at him and he loved him. 
And he said, you lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. I had missed this piece where he loves this man. The man does not argue with him. He does not interact at all. He walks away sad because he had many possessions. And then Jesus says this famous expression, it will be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. I used to hear that as a wagging finger. But now if I wonder if it was a statement of love, a statement of pity, a statement of concern, for this man who was going to have trouble departing with all he had. I'm aware that you and I are often more concerned with what is right in front of us, with what we know, what is tangible, what brings comfort and relief, the things that money can buy, the things that we can get out of the Sears and Roebuck catalog or on Amazon, the things that will help us live in this life, and we often get so caught up in that comfort that we forget about cultivating that which is deeper, richer, more spiritual and eternal. The more we have, the more it lures us into thinking we don't need God. The more comfortable we are, the easier it is to get out of touch with people who are in need which in this world is at least two out of every three people. We start to believe that I don't need God in this way that someone who has nothing need God. I don't even need to believe in God the way someone who has nothing believes in God. Anytime you spend time with the really poor, or those who are in prison, or those who are struggling affliction, you realize that God takes on a tangible reality that it hadn't before and may not for those who are more comfortable. It's not easy to think about, it's not comfortable thinking about it, but it's often true. It's also true that we here in this country are using far more of our share of the world's resources just by the virtue of where we live. And it's not comfortable thinking about that, but it is true. But here's the thing I think Jesus would like us to do, is not walk away from the problem. Not walk away from compassion. Not walk away from the world's needs. It would have been easier if Jesus had said, okay, what I want you to do is to save 10%, give away 10%, and then live off the remaining 80 Or it would have been easier, perhaps even more of a challenge, if he had said, do like Julius Rosenwald will do, which is do a third, a third, and a third. I think that it challenges us to think of what it might mean to give away. It would have challenged the people hearing in that day because the Jewish admonition at the time was to always reserve a fifth of your wealth so that you don't become a charge of the state. And I imagine that's closer to where many of us live that we don't want to be a burden on others, we don't want to become destitute, we don't want to become at, at the liberty of social services. But here's something I think we can do. I think we can push ourselves a little bit more. I think we can push ourselves to give away a little bit more because God is more interested in our generosity than our ability to accumulate. We can also work at how much we love more. 
love people who are in need and try, perhaps just incrementally, to give away more each year than we did the year before. Now, a lot of us might just try to do that by a half a percent or even a tenth of a percent or perhaps as much as five percent more, but trying it and seeing what it feels like. We may not make it. In fact, we may come up short with our own failing in giving to our commitments, the pledges we make to organizations throughout the year, the ways we give money away as it comes to us as people on the street ask for it, but the effort in trying and not walking away and seeking to follow Jesus more nearly and more clearly. Jesus closes this passage by saying, all things are possible with God. And I believe that has to do with the ways we live our life, the ways we acknowledge the wealth that we have, the gifts that we have, and we increase in our generosity. And knowing that all things are possible with God is some good news for all of us, that we together may bring the kingdom of heaven into a reality right here on earth. Amen.